What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Better With Brock podcast, episode number 20. Today, we have the legend Jordan Syed. Uh, he's been a massive inspiration to me. And also just, man, you've, I, like, I think you were like one of the pioneers of, I guess, the, the no BS fitness industry that's, that's running rampant at the moment. Um, so, I, man, I appreciate you. I appreciate the work that you do. And it's awesome to have you on the podcast, man. Thanks for coming on. Man, thank you. I'm stoked to be here. Like I was saying before, sorry for for all the bullshit scheduling that I put you through. <laughs> for everyone listening, I like made Brock jump through hoops to get on this fucking podcast. And it was not deliberate. I'm just the worst with calendars and scheduling. So uh, thank you for for hanging in there and dealing with all my nonsense. Man, I appreciate you jumping on. All good, brother. Um, I, I, I kind of wanted to touch on a little bit like um, just how you're posting like the exercises we shouldn't be doing people losing their mm. shit. Um, I just think it's hilarious. You know, I'm very like where I'm from in, in, in Christchurch, New Zealand, it's, it's not really like small town living, but it's real. Like I find the smaller the cities and I haven't traveled much. So correct me if I'm wrong. I know you're well traveled. Like, I guess the more straight up people are, they tell you how it is. Mm. Um, and I found when I moved to bigger cities and maybe I just went to the wrong bigger cities, but people were a bit kind of, you know, just tell you what you want to hear and they kind of schmoozed you and they were like, you know, everyone wanted to be nice. And then I found that the same in the fitness industry. Then you, you know, you come across someone like yourself who just tells it how it is. Like what made you want to just like, have you always been like this? Have you always just wanted to post like that? Was it something that you came across? You're like, Oh no, I'm, I'm just going to be myself now. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's a lot to it. So first and foremost, thank you for the kind words. Um, second, I would say if you, I mean, I started making content in July of 2011. So like right. 11 years ago now, I started making content. I, I mean, it's been a long fucking time, <laughs> yeah. and, and I have a lot of practice with it. And if you go back and look at the content I made early on in 2011, 2012, 2013 you'll see a very different content creator. You'll see someone, you'll see a young guy who was very nervous, who like, I, I was so nervous when I was on camera that I would like sway back and forth side to side because, and I would get red in the face. I'd get red in the face and I'd be swaying side to side and, and people would comment. They'd be like, you know, this is great information, but relax a little bit. Cause I'd be so nervous on camera. And when I was really nervous about being on camera, I wasn't as direct because I was so nervous. The thing that I was really nervous about was I was young. I was like 21, 22. And online fitness wasn't really a thing yet. Like it wasn't a big thing at that time. And I was so nervous about other professionals saying, you're wrong. This is incorrect. Da, 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 da. And that's why I got so nervous. It wasn't because I was nervous to put myself out there per se. It was, I was nervous about being called out and, and someone thinking that I didn't know what I was talking about. That's what I was really worried about. And so with that mindset, I didn't have the mental or emotional capacity to really be myself because I was so worried about not being wrong. As I grew in the industry and as I grew as a coach and became more confident in myself as a human and as a coach, then I was like, ah, fuck it. I don't really care. <laughs> and, and I was able to be more of myself in my content because it got to a point where I truly just didn't really care. Um, I not to say I don't care what people think. I just didn't care if someone disagreed with me. I think that was the, the big jump where before I didn't want anyone to disagree with me. I felt if someone disagreed with me, then there was something wrong with me or I'd have to get into an argument and a confrontation. I didn't want to do any of that. Hmm. Eventually I got to the point where I was like, fuck it. If someone disagrees with me or has a confrontation with me, like whatever, 
doesn't really matter. So I didn't care about that anymore. And then I could be like, I could say whatever I wanted and be more of myself. And I grew up in Boston and Boston is like an East coast city in the United States where people, it's like New York. They just don't give a fuck. <laughs> it's like, they say it like it is. It's like they're. it's funny because you have like East coast versus West coast. So like Boston, New York versus like California and stuff. And Californians often tend to be like, Hey man, like much more relaxed, bro. Like there, and, but oftentimes they, they won't be as direct or confrontational or straightforward. It might be a little bit more beat around the bush, more politically correct. And East coast are like, fuck you. Like whatever you, <laughs> whatever you want to say, you say it. So it's actually really funny because a huge portion of my audience is actually it started out as East Coast people because mm. they appreciated what I was like. And often the West Coast people did not like how I was so brash sometimes. Uh, now it's grown, but I think my like most diehard supporters are people who just like to be – if I get a nice message from someone, it almost always says, I appreciate your straightforward, no bullshit attitude. Yeah. If I get yeah. a mean message from someone, it's almost always like, I don't like how mean you are or how much you swear. So it's the, it's the same attitude garnering two different responses from two different types of people. Mm. And, and did anyone ever call you out like in a big way? Um, I mean, in a, in a big way. Yeah. Like I've had, I've had people call me out to their audiences. If someone has a big audience, I've had people do that for mm. sure. And, and at first, like it used to, I think any business owner, regardless of fitness industry or not, whatever industry you're in, if you own a business, there's always a fear of, could I lose everything, right? Mm -hmm. Like everything that you've, you've spent so much time and energy building, there's always some fear of, will I lose it all? And so there were times where, you know, someone would call me out and I'd get so nervous because I'd be like, fuck, now all of their followers think I'm an idiot and everything is going to like, everything's going to collapse. And it didn't. And everything was totally fine. Mm -hmm. So earlier on, it would be a big deal. Uh, even today, if, if someone called me out today, like I wouldn't be happy about it. I wouldn't be like, oh, like oh, I'm so happy that someone with a big mm -hmm. audience just called me an idiot. But yeah, it does happen for sure. And and usually, at this point in my career, I'll either ignore it or if I do address it, I'll just be like, listen, like they're entitled to their opinion. That's fine. But like, mm -hmm. it is what it is. Yeah. Do you think it's harder to to start now? Because I feel like you were really early to the game. Like you were early on YouTube, you were early on Instagram. Um, I, I know you started early on TikTok, then you're kind of like, oh, <laughs> this place isn't for me. <laughs> yeah, you know, screw this. Um, but there's so many people out there, even like, you, you, like I'm on TikTok and, and there's a lot of accounts, like user 1700 million and you know, 42 in there. And that is like, you're wrong, you're shit, like you're dumb. Like Arnold didn't say that, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah. do you think it's harder now to post because there's just so much more awareness? There's so much more usership on these platforms. Yeah. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting perspective. So in one, I, I, most people, when they ask this question, they say, is it harder to start because there are so many more fitness professionals on? Mm -hmm. um, and, and for that, I would say, no, it's not harder mainly because I would say, yeah, there are many more fitness professionals, but the number of fitness professionals who are actually very good at being a coach and also who are very good at posting content and who are also very consistent at posting content, those three things, like it's, it's tiny, it's a minuscule percentage of people. So in that instance, like, no, it's not harder at all now. Mm. Um, and I would actually say it might even be easier now on that front because you have so much more great content available to see and to model your own content off of. When I first started, it was like, I'm just making everything. <laughs> like I have no idea how to make content. I'm just going to 
whatever comes to my mind, I'm going to format it in whatever way possible. And I mean, that's how I came up with infographics. I was like, I'll just try this shit in 2017. And that went off, but like, you just, you make shit up. Now you can sort of say, Oh, I like how that person does it. I like how that looks. And I'll sort of make my message into something that looks similar to something I've already seen. So in that mm. stance, I think it's actually easier, but in, from the question you asked in terms of, because there's so many people on there now and like there's, there can be a great amount of positivity, but also a lot of negativity. Yeah. I yeah. think it's harder. It's much harder now because when I first got on, there was negativity for sure, but not like there is now and not with the ease of, of, for example, when I first started, it was, I was really only on my personal Facebook page and my website. That's really all there was. Instagram didn't exist in 2011. Like it was, I was posting on my personal Facebook page and my website and on a website, especially back then in 2011, 2012, when I first started, I was only having like 20 views a day on my website. And it was like 18 of them were my mom. Like that was it. So like I wasn't getting a ton of other people and for someone to go out of their way to read a 2000 word article and then leave a a comment, like a negative comment, that's a big time investment on their part. Mm. And usually if someone goes to an article, they're going to read most, if not the entire thing. Now someone will see like a 15 second reel, watch the first two and a half seconds and then leave a mean comment because the comments are right there. It's super easy. It's going right in front of their face. They don't have to go to a website to find it. It's just the ease of, of it being shown to you. It's so much faster and more accessible and the comments button is right there. So I think now because there's so much more ability for people to give their unsolicited opinion without actually even fully understanding the nuance of that you're saying it, it can be more difficult from an emotional and mental perspective to put yourself out there. 100%. Yeah, I found that with, so I did like a post and, and I wasn't saying I was against body positivity, but people just took like the first part of the video absolutely wrong. Like, yeah. All I was trying to say, like this, this certain individual said that like, like this is where my body wants to be. And then I came with the approach of like, that's not really how I'd look at it. I'd look at it more like that's a result of your lifestyle, your genetics, you know, your activity, what you consume and all of that. And then all these people just jumped in. I think this is what she meant. I think this is what she meant. And then I was kind of like, well, if she meant that she would probably use that. Like, you know, she, like, she would have, like, I was trying to be real respectful, man. Cause I could have just been like, this is look. I was like, look, man, I don't like, if she meant that she wouldn't have spoke metaphorically. Cause everyone's like, you miss misread her metaphor. And I was like, man, like if I didn't have thick skin, cause I can take that, you know, like I've been online, yeah. you know, not as long as you since 2011, I started in 2015, but like you kind of develop thick skin and just realize, you know, people just post them because I don't know, there's something going on in their life where they just want to like yeah. say, they just want to have this kind of, you know, opinion that's heard and they just kind of throw stuff at you. Um, but it's, yeah, like, especially TikTok, I find that's pretty, like, I can understand why you jumped off or like why you didn't really find. The comment section on TikTok is the worst. It's, it's unbelievably stupid. And it like, so if I do post, I just don't look at the comments anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the, what you just said is actually one of the reasons why I don't do much content that like, there's a whole, and I've seen you doing this and I've loved your content on it, but a lot of people are now doing the content where like they'll screen record what someone else has said and then they'll make content on it. And I've Mm. done that a little bit, but for example, like my buddy, James Smith, he does this all the time. James does this all the time and he's super good at it. And he's like very deliberate in one of the reasons why he'll do it. Cause like it will drive more engagement. For me personally, 
I don't like to like I've done that to a few people. Mainly I would do it to people like like Drew Barrymore had the fucking dumbest thing. Like it was like these like vegetable lollipops. It was like, all right, what so the that. fuck is this nonsense? <laughs> so I did that and I knew Drew Barrymore wasn't gonna make a reel about me doing like I she's not gonna go out of her way to do that. Number one, because she looked like a complete idiot. But like um I just know she's not gonna do that. I tend to stay away from other people in the industry making content. That's why I'll make up my own characters. That's why I'll put a wig on and I'll make something else up because if inevitably, if you end up using someone else's content, you're going to piss them off. Like you're essentially, no matter what, burning a bridge every single time. And so for me, it's like, I don't want to burn a ton of bridges. I don't want to like Gary Vaynerchuk said something that like always stuck out to me, basically saying like, if you want to build the biggest house or the biggest building, you have two ways of doing it. You can try and tear every other building down, or you can try and make your building the biggest. It's like what, and, and you could just try and build the tallest building. And mm -hmm. so I realized that I was spending so much time when I would call people out worrying about what they were saying or what the people who were their followers were saying, or the pissing contest between us was like, fuck it. I'm just going to sort of, if I see something stupid, then I will either, I, I will not use this individual or if it is an individual, I'll make sure that it's something that like, there's no way either they're going to see it or like, it's very rare that they're going to, or it's not going to end in a pissing match. Like I knew I was not going to end in a pissing match with Drew Barrymore, but like she, she doesn't give a shit about what I, she was like <laughs> laughing the whole way, way to the bank. She doesn't care at all. Um, yeah. But like, I see a lot of people doing that within the fitness industry to other fitness, fitness industry professionals. Mm. And it's fine if that's what that coach wants to do. But for me personally, I'm like, social media is draining enough. I don't need to make yeah. more yeah. fucking struggles for myself by like bringing out more controversy and more burning bridges and more ups. I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. I'll, if I need to do something, I'll put on a wig and I'll make <laughs> something up based off something I saw. Yeah. It's hard to really, yeah, it, it, it it is a challenge. Like you feel like you're walking on this tightrope. Like I always do my best to, to go at an idea as opposed to a person, yeah. but often yeah. people find it very hard to separate. They're like, Oh, you called this person out. And I'm like, no, it's the, it's the information that they're talking about. I'm not saying that like they need to do this or that they are wrong, but yeah, I, yeah, I know what you mean. Like you get stuck in this kind of fight where it's like, you know, I wasn't necessarily like, I'm yeah, I, I really don't want to fight people, you know, like I'm just trying yeah. to like be like, cause like, I found that like if I would just create a video where I'm just like talking about the topic, people are just like, okay, but yeah, like maybe I need to put on a blonde wig or, you know, put on some rollerblades and try something new. But dude, even your videos have been great. I like that's, I've posted so much less on my feed recently for a I've number seen of that, reasons. Man. Like I, I, I was just looking, your last post was like the 7th of July. And even before that, it was like way before, like I just, I, I go through phases, but right now in my career, uh, number one, I could lose followers and I'd be totally fine. I don't really care. Mm. Um, the other thing is, man, I've been doing this for a long time and, and I'm fucking tired of the nonsense. Like I, I mm. my favorite type of content is number one podcast. So having amazing conversations like this and also uh, Instagram story Q and A's Q and A's. I love um, because I can take time to really put nuance into it. And through spending so many years doing them, like my audience they will spend 20 or 30 minutes going through my Q and A's, holding them down, reading the entire thing. Like they're ready for long form content on my stories where I can get into nuance. Whereas on, on the feed, so much of it is how can I get their attention super fast 
and how can I keep them on it for as long as possible just so that it will reach more people and get more followers. And, and from one of the things as coaches that we do is we always tell our clients, don't worry about the number on the scale. Don't worry about the number on the scale. It doesn't mean anything. Da, 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 da. And meanwhile, all we're focusing on is the number of followers that we're getting. <laughs> and we're doing all these things just to bump up the number of followers, just to bump up the number of followers. It's like, there's nothing wrong with getting more followers, but when that's your sole focus, it, it steals your soul. It's mm. poison for your, I'm like, I'm fucking done with it. Yeah. And like, it often changes the message that you're tr like that you originally want to say, because you have to say it in a different way. Correct. That's exactly right. I was like, I would way rather just go on my stories and, and put something out in a very simple, easy to understand way than have to put on this wig and dance around for a fucking hour and then edit this piece of content where I don't even get the best information across. It's much better when I do it in a story Q&A, for me at least. Mm. So, and I understand I'm, I'm fortunate and blessed in, in the sense that I already have a large number of people looking at my stories. So if I was starting from today, I would have to go to my feed. I couldn't just go on my stories. Like if I, mm. if I lost all my accounts and everything and was starting from zero, I'd have to do that bullshit on the feed just to get more eyes on me and engagement. But at this point in my career, I'm fucking tired of it. <laughs> <laughs> so is that why you, you jumped into writing a book? Is that something that you always wanted to do? I know you wrote eat it. You put it out with your mate, Mike. Um, is that, is that something that you always wanted to do? Is that because it's more long form content? It's stuff you enjoy and people that are reading it are actually going to absorb it or it's not like the first couple of pages or the first two seconds of a reel and then they throw it away. Yeah. So I, there's, it's a great question. I think there's a bunch of aspects. Number one, I think is just a, a bucket list ego type thing where it's like, it's cool to say I've written a book. I think that's probably a, a major, if I'm being honest and objective, like it's mm. partly for my ego mm. and like to say, I, I wrote a book. Cool. Because as of right now, I have no fucking desire to write another book. That was a brutal process. Like, it really was. And I'm very proud of it, but like yeah. it was brutal. Um, the other part of it, and I think the major part was I have a ton of articles on my website. I have like thousands of articles. I have uh, almost a thousand YouTube videos. I have hundreds of podcasts. I have thousands and thousands of Instagram posts, like, I have th like all over the internet. But nowhere is like my methodology compiled into one easy to access manual, right? It's mm -hmm. like you can't get all of my thoughts on all these topics cohesively in a very well thought out, like in your hand here, this is everything you need. Because you'd have to scroll through my Instagram and find random posts and go to my website and find other articles and go to my YouTube. And here, it's like, it's all here in the book. So for me, it's just, hey, you need, you need to know what I think about this. Here's the book. It, it's in there. And you can carry it with you. You can travel it with you. You can travel with you, uh, whatever it is. Whereas with the other stuff, it's not as cohesive and not as like in the right order. So I think that was the biggest part of it. And, uh, and yeah, going forward, I, I, I was talking to my buddy Mike about it. I was like, the only way that I would write another book is if I was offered an unbelievable amount of money. Yeah. Because like it's the process of writing a book it's, it's devastatingly brutal. Like, and, mm. and this isn't even a super long book. The whole purpose was to actually make it relatively easy to read. So people could read it within a day and a half, two days and have everything they need if they really wanted to. I mean, I don't know how some people like JK Rowling, you know, who's one of my favorite <laughs> authors of all time yeah, yeah, writing yeah. seven part series, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages, each book getting longer than the last. I'm like, God bless her soul. Like, I don't know yeah. how these authors do it. It's unbelievable. But do you think nonfiction is more challenging than fiction when you're trying to like use research and like, you know, if it's your imagination, there's, you know, it's kind of all subjective and 
you know, you can make up your own truths, but in, you know, especially when you're talking about diet and sustainability, there's, you know, there's really strong research that you kind of want to follow or you might get. So that's a great question. I think in some ways it's easier and in some ways it's harder. I think, for example, we look at Harry Potter, we look at Lord of the Rings, whatever. I mean, those are, I don't think people understand the gravity, how unbelievably genius these books and stories are. They knew from, from page word one, page one, what was going to happen. They had to have all of this planned out ahead of time or else it wouldn't have worked. Like literally Lord of the he made up a language. He literally made up an entire language that people speak now. It's like, and to have all of these moving parts, that I think is, it's a level of genius that we really can't comprehend. Um, so in that sense, I think it's way more difficult. On the other hand, you can use your imagination and it's art in the sense of you can make it up whatever you want. Like, do you want to like have a spell that does this random shit? Cool. Got a spell that does that random shit. Needs to, uh, to solve this? Cool. We can. So in that sense, it can be more fun and imaginative. Whereas with our work, the more science-based work, it's easier in that like there are objective truths, right? It's like, mm. these are reasons why the scale might fluctuate. We know that here. We'll list them all out scientifically. Why? On the other hand, it's harder in that it is often very difficult to get someone who's not really passionate about this stuff to actually spend the time reading it and learning it. Mm. So I think, I mean, we all know if you go to school and you're in a textbook and it's just so dry and boring, you're not going to read it. So that's where we have to bring the creativity and the writing skill and the ability to, to keep people's attention, which I think can make it more difficult when you have a set in stone list of rules and objectives that you have to follow. When you don't, when you can sort of choose your road, like in, in nonfiction uh, or like in fiction, whatever it is, when you can choose whatever you want it to be, you have so many more options you can make it more interesting but for a more science-based text well now all of a sudden like hey here's here's the guidelines and within these guidelines you have to figure out ways to be more creative and fun and engaging i think that's a different type of skill so what were the things that you really wanted to drive home in the book like obviously sustainability i know is one of your key foundations or pillars that you put to a diet like what other things did you want to drive or was it really just like this is like the long-term game this is what we need to focus on so the main thing, so I remember when I first started doing one-on-one online coaching in 2012, it's like when I got my first ever online client, I realized it was very different than in-person coaching for a number of reasons. Um, in, in-person coaching is obviously, especially when you're a personal trainer, it's more personal training, it's strength training, it's technique, it's all that stuff. And they'll talk about nutrition and everything, but it's not a nutrition consultation. You're there, you're coaching them, you're making sure they're using the right muscles, they're not going to hurt themselves, all that stuff. One-on-one online coaching, now you have much more time to converse about nutrition. You have much more time to discuss what they're struggling with schedule-wise, environment-wise, individually, uh, uh, from an emotional perspective, psychological perspective, with their spouse, with their kids, with their work. Now, all of a sudden, all the things you couldn't talk about as much in person is becoming a huge part of the conversation. And it's not just once or twice a week. It's four, five, six, seven times a week. They're emailing you every day. And so you have way more communication, which is why I've, I've always said, I think in-person coaching can often be better for strength training. Online coaching is often better for nutrition because you actually can really talk to them and get to know them better and know like what's actually going on outside of simply the food choices. 
So what I realized through online nutrition coaching was the main reason people were not succeeding had nothing to do with their knowledge or very little to do with their knowledge. It wasn't that they didn't know what to do. They, they knew they should be eating more fruits and vegetables. They knew they should be eating more lean protein. They knew they should be working out. They knew they should be sleeping well. They knew they should drink more water. They knew all this stuff. Like they know it. The issue I found is that as soon as they went off track, and that's an air quotes, as soon as they had a, a bad food or a bad meal or went on vacation or had a weekend where they weren't tracking or they went over their calories one day, they felt like they fucked up. They felt like they ruined all of their progress. They felt like mm -hmm. everything was, well, what's the point of trying if I already failed, right? So then they go off track, they binge for a day, a week, a month, whatever it is. And so that's their cycle, the yo-yo dieting cycle. And I ended up making video courses for all of my one-on-one -on -one clients. And I, I, it was a 30, 30 video courses that I would send them one new one every day. And they were between like two to five minutes. And this is like their introductory video course to working with me. And the first video I sent them had nothing to do with nutrition. It had nothing to do with calories or macros or protein or carbs or fats. It had nothing to do with strength training. It had nothing to do with consistency. It had nothing to do with anything. It, the first video was titled, you can't fuck this up. Mm. And it was me talking about how I don't care if they go over their calories for a day or for a week or for a month. I don't care if they miss one workout, three workouts, seven workouts. I don't care if you, I don't care what happens. The only way you fuck up is if you quit altogether, because as long as you get right back on track, you will make progress, period, end of story. And that is what I made the first chapter of this book. And it, it's really, we spent the first couple of chapters really hammering that home, because if you don't have that as the foundation for your knowledge, if you don't know that you can't fail, if you don't know that, then, then you are going to set yourself up for failure in the long run. Because at any point in time, you will use any mistake as a justification to quit altogether. So that for me is like, that's the, the foundation of the book. That's like the, the message we drive home throughout the entire book. It's like what, what you would call uh, in a speech, you'd call the through line where like, that's like, this is what we're trying to get across that the entire message of this book is cool. Here are your calories. Here are your macros. Here's your strength training program. Here, here's your nutrition. Here's all this. But no matter what, the one thing you need to remember is you only fail if you quit. As long as you get right back on track, I don't care what happens, just keep on going. And as long as they do that, they'll succeed. That's really the foundation of it. Yeah, I think that's super key. And coming from face-to-face -face personal training myself, I started on the gym floor uh, as well. And I was there for a few years before I went online. It's really hard to, like, you, you know, you can email back and forth, but often... I found that my one-to-one my -one face to face client didn't want to email and stuff because they saw me. They're like, oh, I'll just talk Correct. about it when I see you. But then you have 60 minutes, uh, sorry, 60 seconds, 90 seconds, maybe two minutes in a rest period. You can't break down anything in that amount of time. Like if you want to talk about nutrition, first of all, they can't breathe. So then <laughs> they're like yeah. drinking, they're like not really listening. And then you just like kind of rattle off this random thing, maybe about a calorie deficit or, you know, protein's important or sleep and all that kind of stuff. And there's just no time for it. I, like I, I, I definitely found that too, but I found that the standard of personal training, like when I first started, like I find that I was, and, and I thought I was giving like a minimal, you know, like the standard, but it's, it's hard because it's unregulated. Like the standard of personal training is like, unfortunately quite low. Like I had a, like I bought an iPad and I had my programs with them and, and I just saw PTs walking around. And they were busy too, like busy PTs, just walking around. And I started in fitness first, like a commercial gym that's just very, you know, just get started in, 
as long as you're paying rent, you're all good. Like as, as long as you're paying rent, you're not injuring, you know, members, then you're all good. And yeah, they would just walk in and kind of, you know, look around. What's over here? Oh, the bench press is free. Like, oh, we'll just go over here. Oh, did we train chest last time? Oh, we'll do back. Oh, we'll do bent over rows. Like it was just crazy. I was like, this is madness. Yeah, it, dude, it's so true. It's funny. Like the barrier to entry to becoming a coach is super low. It's a very, uh, very low barrier to entry. So pe- anyone can do it. Anyone can put it in their Instagram bio and all of a sudden, you know, they're a coach now. Um, mm-hmm. What's interesting though, is what you said, how like these were busy personal trainers, right? So like, busy. They had, a, they had a lot of clients, right? And to you, someone who values the science of this and the coaching, you're like, what the fuck? Like that's <laughs> for, they, they don't even know what they're going to train today. They're about to make up the workout but they're super busy. And that is something that I think most coaches, especially science-based coaches, like let's be very honest. Most science-based coaches suck with people. (laughs) They're fucking awful. And they're like, well, I'm a great coach. And they get super jealous at coaches with big audiences or are doing really well. And they're like, well, I'm a better coach than them. It's like, well, listen, part of coaching is knowledge. But what you have to remember is that you're coaching a human a real human being, and they don't give a fuck how much knowledge you have if they don't like you, if you aren't likable, if you don't care about them. Like, I don't care how knowledgeable someone is. If I don't like them, I'm not going to pay them to learn from them, period. Why would I spend time with someone that I don't like? So I would rather probably spend, spend money with someone who maybe not, might, might not be as knowledgeable, but I love them. I love mm-hmm. hanging out with them. They make my hour better. It's not like so many coaches look at this like, well, you need to optimize this hour. So like every single thing is perfect. And it's like, people don't give a fuck. If you're being really annoying, they're not going to spend one, two, three, four hours with you every week. Like, no, absolutely not. They're going to find the coach that makes them feel good. That it's an enjoyable hour. It'll push them. But most importantly, they just like being around them. That's what, that's what it is. So if you can have both be really knowledgeable and very likable and be good with people. That's really where the magic happens. And I think too many coaches end up only focusing on the science and then they're not busy at all and they're not helping anybody. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I found that when I first started in like here in Sydney, I started in New Zealand, but I came over and I was young. So I was like maybe 21, 22 PT. uh, But I was, I was putting in the hours. I started at 6 a.m. I finished at 8 p.m. I was just walking the gym floor, trying to be friends. You, you, You know, you've been through it, the grind. And I was grinding. And, and, and there was these guys with PhDs and they had their own physiotherapy clinics on the side and they were like looking at me and, and, and I remember one pulling me aside. He's like, Hey man, with your client that's doing pull-ups, you can't do it like that. He's like, you can't do it like that. He's like, he's like, it, 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 it was, it, it was like breaking down the scapula. Like I've never heard it before. I was like, look, man, like, thanks, but like, no thanks. But like he yeah. was, yeah, like he was like not busy enough and I was like young, but I was passionate and I was learning and I was getting it and I was being nice. And he was just like this guy that was just like trying to like point fingers over there. Like, Hey man, you need to break down the scapula. That's not very good yeah. for him in the long term. And I was just like, man, you know, I was, you know, once again, fortunate to know that, okay, like it's, it's more this guy's problem than my problem. Cause what right. I saw was perfectly fine. You know, maybe he saw a dodgy rep when they were tired, but it's like, yeah, it's, it, it, it's really tricky coming in when you're young and you're trying to be like a PT and then to throw on nutrition on top of that, it's, um, you know, face-to-face with timing and stuff like that. It's really difficult. How did you transition to online? Because I probably did that in, in 2020, I went full-time online just, um, mm-hmm. just before the pandemic. Um, and I know you did it a bit earlier. How did you transition to that? Yeah, so I, I went fully online in 2014. Um, so Super I, early to the game, man. Yeah, 
Yeah, really early. Uh, and I was very lucky and blessed. But basically, so I was coaching people in person from when I was in like 2005, 2006 is when I started doing in-person coaching. And, and I knew immediately, like, that's what I wanted to do. I just got an internship when I was in high school. I was like, you know, I, I, I was wrestling. I started wrestling when I was eight years old. Yeah. And, uh, and I was, and I basically, I was, uh, I made varsity as a freshman in high school. So first year of high school, I made varsity and I beat a junior out for the varsity spot, but I was good from a technique perspective and endurance perspective, but because I was so young going up against mainly older kids, my strength wasn't where it needed to be. So I, I wrote to a gym, I sent an email to a gym a couple towns over for me in Boston. And I was like, I'll take the trash out. I'll clean the floors. Just like, let me come and learn from you. And not only did they take me under their wing, but they were also very science-based. So like, like from 14 years old, I was in a very science-based gym, which was just so incredibly lucky. And so I knew I wanted to coach people. And I did that from then all the way, um, all the way till 2014, I was doing in-person and then I, but I started online in 2011. Like when I started making online content, got my first client in 2012 and started to build up over those next couple of years, building an online program. And I went fully online in 2014. And, um, basically I was, I started with just one-on-one -on -one coaching. So I was just doing one-on-one -on -one online coaching. I'll tell you they, the first time I ever got a one-on-one -on -one client, I was, uh, it was 2012. I had been making content online for a year, year and a half or so all on my personal Facebook page and website. And I got like, I was coaching people online, like mostly like my roommates in college and, uh, high school friends and all of that, but all for free. I wasn't charging anybody because I didn't, I, I didn't know that I could charge. I didn't know it was possible. And I just loved coaching people. So I was like, yeah, people were like, Hey, can you write me a program? Yeah, sure. I'll write your program. And I would coach people online. And then one day I got an email from a woman in Brazil, and this is in 2012. And the way that she phrased her email changed my life forever. She just, she said, Hey Jordan, love your content. Again, Instagram didn't exist yet. It was all my website. Love your content. Um, how much do you charge for online coaching? And I was like, I have no fucking clue. Well, usually so, it's free, but <laughs> yeah. so I, I replied, I just made up a number in my head. I was like 300 bucks. And, she, and in my head, I'm like, I'm 21, 22 years old. I'm like, there's no way that this person who I've never met, who lives in another country, is going to pay me $300 to write a program. And she comes back. She's like, amazing. How do I pay you? And I was like, <laughs> I'm like looking around my dorm room, like at my roommates, like they, I didn't say anything because I didn't think I thought I was going to jinx it. So then I go on Google and I, I Google search how to make payments online. And I found paypal.com, which I didn't know existed. And so I made an account and all this stuff. And I created a link for $300. Uh, it was $300 for 12 weeks of coaching. And so then, so it was, a, like, it was a super low price. So, <laughs> so then I, I sent her the link. And at that, like, I, it's, looking back, it's super low price. But then I was like, I'm about to be rich, 300 bucks. <laughs> like, I yeah, couldn't boy. believe it. <laughs> and, and so I sent her the link. And in my mind, I'm like, there's no way she's actually going to send me the money. Like, there's no way. And very quickly, I get a notification from PayPal saying there's $300 in my account. I lost my shit. Like my roommate had just come back from working a double as a waiter in a bar. And like, and he was like super excited because he made like 120 bucks after a 12 hour shift. And I was like, bro, I just made 300 bucks like just now. And he like, couldn't believe it. And so I spent the next 48 hours, there's a cafe, like a coffee shop called Brew Ha Ha, a couple of blocks away from my, from my dorm room. 
I spent 48 hours making this program. I mean, I spent so much time because I was so worried. I thought if I sent her the program, she was going to be like, what is this? And want to refund immediately. Mm. So I, and I had to make my systems from scratch. I had no idea what I was doing. Like I have to make all these systems, film all these videos. So the technique videos are there. I had to do everything. So I spent 48 hours making this program before I send it over, before I send it over, I'm super nervous. I'm like, she's not going to like it. She's going to think this is ridiculous. Da, da, da. I send it over. She's like, Oh, this looks amazing. Thanks. And that was it. And she was my first <laughs> online client. And I was like, Whew, like, all right, everything is okay. And then so I went through the coaching process with her and I started to take, and then whenever anyone asked, Hey, can you write me a program? Then I started to say things like, okay, yeah, it costs like X amount per program or in each program is this much time. And then I eventually changed it to month to month as opposed to every 12 weeks. But that's how it started. And then by the time I got to 2014, I was fully online. And then in 2015, I started my membership. Uh, and I went, I didn't go fully into my membership until 2017. Wow, man, what a journey, eh? Like I was, a, I was in a similar position. Like when I first went online, I had nothing as well. I was doing face-to-face -face and, and maybe like you, I was doing like half and half kind of, or not half and half, but like as I was doing face-to-face -face and I started posting online you, and, and people ask you, oh, how can I work with you? And then you get some people. Then I was like, oh, well, then maybe face-to-face, -face, I, I, like I may have to increase my rates because then I, I'm just too busy. Like I was burning at the candle at both ends for ages, like a long time, yeah. like most personal trainers do. Like, man, when I first started, I was doing the whole 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. Oh, sorry, 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. thing like every day, Monday to Friday. And then gym was closed Saturday, Sunday. So I was washing dishes on the weekend. Like I was doing dishes yeah. like Saturday morning, Saturday night, dishes Sunday morning, Sunday night, finish midnight, back in the gym, you know, 6 a.m. Monday. Like it was just like the grind. I, I, I feel like a lot of, like there's so many online coaching courses that you can come out and just do then you're an online coach it's like they don't understand what it's like man like like yeah i was scrambling too my first online client i was like you know um google sheets was out at the time so that's how i did it all you know paypal and yeah and google sheets and and email and i was just like you know yeah like the the first time I did it was, yeah, someone was in New Zealand where I was originally from. They followed me originally. And then I came to Aussie. They were still following and they tried to work with me. And yeah, it was like, the, I was like, okay. And then I was just like, how much does it cost? <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Uh, yeah. Two, I, I think it was like 200 bucks. Like it was like, it was, I, I was like, like you, like just low barrier to entry. Cause I was like, I can't believe these yeah. guys actually want to work with me. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's really mind blowing. So I, I, I kind of followed you up a little bit and you said that you started with kettlebells. Yeah, um, yeah. And then you moved to powerlifting and now you're training like longevity. I know you're training jujitsu too. Actually, a big reason why I started it too. I'm like in early stages of jujitsu. Let's go. Um, so, so getting my ass kicked, man, for real. Um, like, what's, like what's been the, I guess, reason for your shifts in the time? Like obviously you started with kettlebells probably because you were limited with what you had. And then you went into powerlifting, which is probably the gym that you interned at. And now you like, you know, you're more training, like, obviously you still want to be strong and build muscle or whatever when you want to. But like, I remember you saying you're training for like longevity and you're and training to benefit your jujitsu as well. Like what's been yeah. the, the evolution? Man, so there's, it's, there's a lot and it's been scary every time I change for a number of reasons. But actually, so I first got into kettlebells because when I started looking into uh, strength training for wrestling. I came across this guy. I was, you know, I don't know, I was 13, 14 years old. And I came across this guy named Pavel Tsatsulin, who like so many people know now. Uh, you, you know Pavel, right? I don't know him. 
Pavel, oh man, he's fuck. He's like the guy who popularized kettlebells. He's like right. this guy, P A V E L, Pavel Sotsin. He's like the godfather of kettlebells. All right, let me write um, that down. Yeah. It, super super famous he doesn't do as much online now but like back in the day this like this is the he's the reason kettlebells are so popular all around the world he, he's the guy who popularized them and i found his work and you know this guy is like pretty skinny not like bodybuilders at all like not but like fucking stronger than you could ever imagine this guy was lifting the heaviest kettlebells over his head easy like easily the insane shit like the most insane strength and i was like that's what i need i i didn't want to be like a bodybuilder i didn't want to be huge because wrestling is a weight controlled sport i always had Mm. to keep my weight down but i wanted to get stronger while staying the same weight and so and he was always like kettlebells are the best that all you ever need i was also a teenager and so i was super like uh influenced by whatever someone said and so basically i just assumed kettlebells were the best so then i i and they are great they're a wonderful tool especially for combat sports and for military training they're amazing for that Mm. Um, but i really thought that that's all you'd ever need and so i google searched kettlebell gyms near me and that's how i found the gym that i applied to when i was a teenager it was a kettlebell gym oh yeah so it was a kettlebell gym and they took me under their wing and they also did barbells and dumbbells, but like they, they were known for their kettlebell training and they were very high level. And so I, st- I got certified in kettlebells when I was like 14, 15 years old. Like I got obsessed with kettlebell training and that's what I trained from 14 to 18 years old. It was almost exclusively kettlebells. I got really fucking good with them. Um, and that's what helped with my wrestling training and all of that. And so then after there, after high school, when I decided I wasn't going to wrestle anymore, I went into powerlifting. That was a logical next step for me. It was like, I love the strength training, but I want to go further. So I went from kettlebell training and wrestling to powerlifting. Powerlifting was a huge, uh, that's really how my career started to take off because I'm a small guy. I'm five foot four. I don't know what that is in centimeters or anything, but like short, super short. Um, and I was able to deadlift four times my body weight. So at like it's massive it's weighing massive. 132 pounds, I deadlifted 530 pounds and I don't know what that is in kilograms, but like it's a, a lot, amount. man. It's definitely over 200. <laughs> yes. It's way, it's significantly over 200. I think it's, it's like 230, 200, between yeah. 230 to 250 kilograms. Um, and, and so I lifted that and I started to like to make a name for myself in powerlifting because this is around 2010, 11, 12, at that time, powerlifting was big, but it really started to get big for women. And, and this is mm. like sort of me being in the right place at the right time because many women started to wanted to get strong. Like this is right at the beginning of really women being more involved in strength training and not just, you know, cardio shit and yoga and all that. Like they like want to get yeah. strong. And so they were nervous though, because they didn't want to get bulky. They didn't want to get huge. So here I come in and I'm the super small guy lifting more weight than guys who are double my size, but I don't look huge. Like I I'm like defined and lean and all that, but like, I'm not jacked like a bodybuilder. Like, all right, well I want to work with this guy. So when I first got into powerlifting, I thought I was going to be coaching like big, sweaty, hairy dudes (laughs) and event. And to my surprise, the vast majority of my client list was women who wanted to get stronger and wanted to lift weights. And they, they wanted to get stronger without getting huge. That was like, was how I started to make a name for myself. So then I was competing in powerlifting and I was doing really well. And that was driving like 98% of my business, which is powerlifting women who wanted to powerlift. Yeah. And, and then I deadlifted four times body weight 
and I was fucking tired and achy and I just didn't want to powerlift anymore. So I retired from powerlifting and I went more towards just like general health. Um, and I was very scared to do that because I literally built my entire business off the back of me being a powerlifter. And I was super worried that if I stop powerlifting, I'm not going to have clients anymore. But so it was like a, a really difficult three to six months of transition for me, like really worried, really scared, almost like, should I just continue to powerlift just because that's what I've always done, which ironically, I think is what a lot of bodybuilder and physique competitors do now, even though they have a terrible relationship with food, they continue to do it because they feel like that's how they're going to make their business. Yep. Different story yep. for a different day. Um, and eventually I was just, I, re I realized I was like, I'm going to do what I love. I'm just going to post about that. And at that point I w wasn't in love with powerlifting anymore. I was more in love. I went back to kettlebell training, more to longevity stuff, uh, general strength training, combat training, wrestling, jujitsu, all that. And, uh, sure enough, people started to ask about that type of coaching. They're like, well, can you coach me to get healthier or reduce my blood pressure or get a chin up or get my first tension ups or whatever it was. And so eventually the vast majority of my clientele are just people who just want to be healthier and be there for their family and friends and live a longer life. And mm. that's been the transition. And where do you think most of those people kind of um, need your help the most? Like what do they find the hardest to get started with, with general health training? Because it's, you know, a lot of people in the world, as we know, need to be healthier. Well, I shouldn't say, well, yeah, maybe yeah, need is the right need. word. Like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah like they need it's to be healthier. Bad. That's yeah. not shaming anybody. Like mm. that's not mean, like they need it. They fuck, unless they want to die earlier or have a terrible quality of mm. life. Yeah. They need yeah. it. Yeah. So, so like, where do you think the, the big struggles are? Like, obviously, like I think personally environments a lot, I think, yeah. you know, um, nutritional availabilities a lot, like, man, the amount of like door buzzers that go off on the weekend here, just from getting Uber Eats, like in this apartment mm. building is crazy. It's like, every like 10 minutes, like someone's getting their Uber Eats delivered. And it's like, this was not happening a while back. Like what? No, yeah, where, five years ago it wasn't happening, right? Like nah, it's man. a brand new phenomenon. It's so different. Yeah. So where do you think they can start or where do you think they need to start to, to improve their position that they're, that they're currently in? So it really does depend on the person. Like, and it's sort of a, I hate the answer because it's annoying. It doesn't give any information, but it depends. So yeah. I would say for most people, I, I'll tell you what I used to say as a coach and now what I've changed in the last couple of years. I used to say the vast majority, majority of people need to start with their nutrition. And the reason is because, especially if someone needs to lose weight for their health or whatever, nutrition is going to be the most important part of that. Uh, nutrition really drives the car like for fat loss, right? Like nutrition is the driver, strength training and movement is the passenger. Mm. Um, but I changed that recently, mainly because even though nutrition is probably what they need to focus on most needs like the most change, I realized that from a behavioral change perspective, it's much harder to change your nutrition than it is to change your movement. Mm. So for example, let's say someone they need to start losing weight. So they start making better nutritional choices and they have an apple and a donut in front of them and they know they can have the donut if they want, they can fit it into their calories, but like, you know what, I need to make the, the choice that's gonna be more nutritious right now, so I'm gonna choose the apple instead. When they choose the apple instead of the donut, they do not immediately feel better. They do not immediately lose weight. They often feel deprived because they didn't take what they wanted, and so oftentimes they, they don't feel good. Even though they made the decision that was right, they don't feel good about it. And they don't see the results immediately and they get more, a little bit demotivated. 
Whereas let's say that same person, instead of starting with their nutrition, we say, all I want you to do is focus on getting 10 minutes of walking today. Just 10 minutes a day of walking, just getting you moving. Well, once you start moving, there is a physiological response that you actually feel better. Your endorphins increase. You legitimately feel better because of that. It's an immediate response. I'm not saying you lose weight immediately, but physiologically, you feel better. You are happier. And because you've done that work now in your mind, often it's more worth it to eat well because you've put in the work. And we see this with people all the time. If they get a workout in, they eat better. If they don't get their workout in, they eat like shit because like, well, I already ruined it, so why bother? Yeah. So for me, after coaching for 15 years, I finally realized, I was like, I'm going to emphasize movement first, knowing that it might not be uh, the thing that they need to work on most, but it will cause them to do the thing they need to work on most, as opposed to if we only focus on nutrition first, they might not actually do it. So, and I'll also say that was more of a fat loss related answer. Let's just talk about health, like not necessarily fat loss, which they, they are in, intertwined, but they're not the same. Yeah. From a health perspective, like I, I think movement's by far the most important. Um, I think like if we look at, it's so funny, we could look at the longest living populations in the world and, you know, we could look at uh, Greeks, we could look at uh, the Japanese, we can look at, we can look at all these different populations in the world that are super, live super long lives. Their diets are vastly different, like vastly different. They have so mm. many different things from different places all over the world, but the common denominator is movement. It's walking. The ones that actually made movement a regular part of their daily life, regardless of their body fat, regardless of like, obviously body fat played a role in it. But even those who had maybe had a slightly higher body fat, the ones that were active were far healthier and likely to live longer than people who mm. were not. So for me, it's like, it's a no brainer. When we're talking about health, movement, walking, that comes first. Awesome, man. Um, I got a few questions that I want to um, kind of thrown at the end. I don't, I don't want to take too much of your time. I know we're coming up to about an hour. No um, worries, man. No, no rush. Um, so question number one is, you know, this is the Better With Brock podcast. And ultimately, I just created it just to help people become better people. Obviously, it's very general, you know, but it kind of opens me up to talk about many things. I didn't just want to talk about sets and reps and training volume because that's dry <laughs> for a lot of people, yeah. even, even personal trainers. Um, but what's one thing you do every day that helps you become better or make sure you have a better day You're making sure you're heading in the heading in the right direction forever, you know, for wherever you want to go. So it's changed over the years, but for the past about two and a half years, it's been jujitsu, which I do like five or six times a week right now. Um, I'm just like, I'm obsessed with it. Like I love it. That's a lot, it's a, man. That's a lot of work. Yeah, I, I love it. It makes me super happy. Um, when I first started jujitsu about two and a half years ago, oh, almost three years ago now, holy shit. Um, yeah. Wow. It was almost three years ago in August. So when I first started, my first coach said to me, he said, when you start your day trying to prevent someone from choking you out, every other obstacle you face that day seems relatively insignificant because you're still alive. Like you didn't die. Right. And it's like in jujitsu, it's, it's a very vulnerable sport, right? It's very vulnerable. Like you put yourself in very vulnerable positions where if someone wanted to break your arm, break your leg, choke you out, they could do it, but you're trusting them not to. And them similar to you, like they're trusting that you won't choke them out. They're trusting you won't break their arm, break their wrist, break their leg, all this other stuff. So every day you are put in a position in which like you could die or be really, really seriously injured, but you didn't, you made it out. You're fine. So anything else you face that day, 
like any problem at work, customer service issue, piece of shit online, whatever's going on, you're fine because he didn't die that morning. So like for me, that's been really a, a fun way for me to look at it. And do you prefer ghee or no ghee? I prefer ghee. When I first started, I preferred no ghee because the wrestling background. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ghee, man, I, I love training with the ghee. It's, it's, it's so much more technical. Um, okay. With no ghee, like, it's a lot more scrambling. You know, there's like a lot more sweat and slippery. And you also have a lot more leg attacks, which for me, one of the main reasons I love jujitsu and, and martial arts in general is like, I like to learn how to defend myself. And I feel like the gi tends to be much more realistic in terms of a real fight. Mm. Um, unless, you know, you're fighting someone who you both have your shirts off or you're wearing a rash guard, but most people are wearing something usually <laughs> if like, you're going to like, and but so you it, can grab. Yeah. yeah, you can grab it. And there are leg attacks with the gi, but it's mostly focused on the upper body. It's more, you know, shoulder locks, elbow locks, wrist locks, mm. choking out arm bar, stuff like that, which is like in a real fight, you're not going to go for someone's heel. Like they'll <laughs> fucking smash you. They will like, they'll, the they'll punch you in the face. It's just not going to work. So the, the purpose for, for especially all jujitsu, but especially in the, it's control leading to submission. You need to control them first. And so for me, I, I feel like I get the best aspects of that from the gi as opposed to no gi and no gi's fun, but I just, I really prefer the gi. What about you? What do you like better? I prefer no gi. But this is because I'm super early into it and lacking technique. So I can rely on almost a little bit of like, it's a weak spot for me, obviously, because it's like I can avoid things a bit easier. I can slip out of things. I can kind of scramble around, like you said. So I like it for the reasons that you don't like it. But I think when I get better and more technical and understand a bit more of like how to use my body better, then I'll rely less on like brute force and like wrestling and just like, trying to throw people around and actually get a bit more technical. Cause that's where I'm like at at the moment. Like it's, you know, I'm, I'm white belt. I got a couple of stripes. I'm just like really early into it, but I do enjoy the pace of no gi. Um, naturally I'm more of like a hyper dude. So I like kind of like using a lot of energy. Like I, like naturally I've, I've just got high levels of need. So I like kind of, you know, running around and like getting sweaty and like wrestling and stuff. But, um, yeah, I think later on I'll learn to appreciate the gi. Um, Second question is, what is a book that, help, that has helped you probably the, the most to get better or one thing you've taken, a book you've taken the most out of? I know you're an avid reader. You do audio books too. Um, I know you read a lot of history as well. So, um, lot, yeah, man. A yeah. lot of history. No books are off so, the table. So there's a bunch. So, I mean, first I'll say, and people are going to think this is weird, but the entire, I'll give you several books. Number one is the entire Harry Potter series. Like, changed my life for, for real. And it's not even just because like, it's amazing. And, and like, it's just so, like that book, it's taught me how to use my imagination better. And, and I feel like imagination is, is not, it's not really encouraged much, especially not, it's not discouraged actively, but it's not encouraged, right? It's not like people like don't use your imagination, but like, I feel like in, at least in the school system that I was brought up in, it was far less focused on imagination and much more just like, this is what we say, do it this way. This is how it's supposed to be done. It's mm-hmm. like, well, there are many ways we could do things and we could use our imagination to figure out how we could get this way, how we could find so many different roads. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is one of the reasons why I have so many issues in politics and the world is like, 
one side has one way, the other side has one way, and it's like nothing else works. It's like, let's use our imagination. Let's try and figure this shit out. And so I love Harry Potter for, if nothing else, it encouraged you to, to use your imagination and to, to think outside of just the one box that we've been told exists and realize there's many boxes inside many boxes inside many boxes. And it's like we can figure out so many different things from exploring them. So I love that for that reason. Um, there's also many, you know, archetypical, archetypical characters within Harry Potter that like relate to life in many ways. But um, I would say, man, there's so, I would say one of my favorite books for content creation was called Made to Stick uh, by Chip and Dan Heath. It's an amazing, amazing book for any content creators looking to make better content that really uh, hits home with people. Um, I would say, man, from a history perspective, there are some really great ones, but one that I read recently that was phenomenal was called Operation Paperclip. I don't know if you've if you've ever heard of that. It's a, no, it's a really good it. book. It's um it can get a little bit dry and repetitive, but it's just it's an amazing book about how um, after World War II, and it's funny how people like. And they hear World War II, there's so many aspects to it. It's like, it's massive. Some people often, so I'm Jewish. So in the Jewish community, we hear World War II and we only think Holocaust. But it's like, there were so many other aspects of World War II. Like the whole Jap Japanese were involved. Like there was like, it's not just Germany versus the United States or Germany versus the Jews. Right? There were so many other aspects of World War II. But um, Operation Paperclip was specifically about how after World War II, there was a lot of tension between Russia and the United States leading to the Cold War. And the German scientists were at least 20 years ahead of every other scientist in the world. Like they were so smart. They were, they, they had engineered some of the most genius things in the world and were so far ahead of America, of Russia, of anywhere else in the world. So there was a race between America, and this is all private. They didn't, they didn't release this until recently. The United States and the Russians, knowing there was huge tension between them, were both going into Germany after World War II to try and find Nazi scientists so that they could bring them back to their respective countries and use them for their knowledge. Now, the US alone, never mind Russia, the US alone brought over 1,800 Nazi scientists from Germany to the United States with their families, gave them new names, new identities, so that they could work in the United States to help them develop rockets, to help them develop uh, weapons of mass destruction, to help them develop so many different scientific advances in the United States so that Russia couldn't use it. Now, interestingly, the only reason the United States was able to land on the moon is due to Nazi scientists, right? And right. some of these, these scientists, like they were not uh, unaware of what they what was going on in Germany, like some of them were directly complicit in the mass murder of millions of people. They were directly involved in it. It's not like they were just you know the whole following orders. Like no, they were directly involved and they had ill intention. Not all eighteen hundred. Some of them were actually good good people and were trying to do the right thing, but some of them were just straight up evil. And the United States still took them just because they were like, listen, like we either what the Russians are going to take them or what. And so there's so much debate around this. And this book was going over who was brought over, why they were brought over the debate, like how we got them. They were like, how did they avoid the Nuremberg trials? Like so much crazy shit. And, uh, and it, as you're reading it, you have so much cognitive dissonance. Cause on one hand you're like, this person was 
directly involved in the the killing and murder and torture of of so many people, but also we need them, right? Like we need we can't just like like what do you do, right? And these are super hard decisions that head political figures have to make in the world. It's like shit. What would you do in that situation? And one of the best analogies I've ever heard to explain it is let's say let's say God forbid you're fighting in World War II, you're on the front lines, you're fighting. Let's say, let's say, well, use me as an example. I'm fighting, I'm a US soldier, and I kill a German soldier, I kill a Nazi. Well, that soldier dropped a gun with all of their ammunition. Should I not use that tool because it belonged to a Nazi? Or should I use that tool to help me progress further? Mm-hmm. And so we could look at these Nazi scientists, their knowledge as a tool. Should we use that? in order to progress further, or should we discard it entirely because of who it belonged to? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and that's the question. That's like the, when it, so that for me was a really, really good book. Very interesting, very scary, very, you know, in, if you, if I know a lot of people are anti conspiracy theories, but like operation paperclip was at one point, a conspiracy theory. People didn't think it was real. People thought they were just making it up and it finally came out and it was a very real secret government operation that happen, these things happen all the time. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yeah, and so I think, uh, you know, some conspiracy theories are crazy, but also some of them are very real. And so it's, it'll sort of shake you with what, what the government can and has done. So do you find like reading history a bit more interesting than reading, say, other books? Like, like why does that fascinate you so much? Like, obviously, you're, is, is it just aligned with what you're interested in? Have you always been into history? So I've, I've always been into history. It's always been something I've been interested in. Um, I think I've always been interested in people. Like I've always been interested in humans and their behavior. And for me, I wrote an entire, uh, I wrote a massive paper, probably I think one of my best pieces of writing ever in college, specifically on Nazis. And my paper that I wrote, this is one of the, I was always interested in how, how, could someone do such evil things mm. and, and not just one person because one person you could chalk it up to they're psychotic like not like psychotic in the way that people say nowadays like it's overused i mean legitimately a psychotic individual yeah. who suffers with psychosis and they need medication there are people who are sick in the head and that's what happens but how could you convince an entire nation of people to do these things and so then i started researching the lives of the the ss like the 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 like evil 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 like some of the worst of the worst of the worst nazi death squad that did a lot of the killing and i started researching the lives of them and i couldn't find anything online i I had to like do the old school way go to the library dig up and what i was doing is i was going through their journals they have journals that these that these officers would keep in their houses and and they found them and they published them and so I was going through uh, um, trials and, and transcripts of trials to see what they were saying. And I just wanted to see what the life of these soldiers was like, not as a soldier, but as a human. Mm. And the craziest thing to me was that these, these soldiers, like these, the most evil people you can imagine, were just like you and me. They had a wife. They had kids. They would go to work. They would kill people. Then they'd go on vacation. They'd tuck their kids into bed. They would go to the grocery store with their family. They were regular members of society. They had a break room in the Nazi death camps where they would hang out and joke around. Then they'd go out, they'd kill people. And it's one of those things. I was like, how the fuck does that happen? And, and for me, I realized I was like, 
evil doesn't have a certain look. Like there's, it's not like you could just point to someone and say like, oh, that's evil, mm. right? Oftentimes we see people doing mass shootings or crazy things and all of their friends and family are like, I had no idea. Mm. They didn't seem like that kind of a person. It's like, cause evil doesn't have a look and people can say and do things. And one of my favorite quotes, I forget the, the guy's name. It's a Russian name, I believe. The line dividing good and evil runs down, it runs through the heart of every single human being. Hmm. We all have good and we all have evil within us. And so many things can impact that. And so I'm, I love humans. I love human behavior. I love analyzing why humans are doing certain things. And I think history is one of the easiest ways to study that because it's already there. It's all laid out. It's different. Like right now with you and I talking, I might be able to analyze your behavior. You might be able to analyze my behavior, but we don't know what that will lead to. We can sort of just give our, our thoughts. But when we look at Hitler, for example, we can trace his entire life from the moment he's born or from even before he's born, all of the things he went through and analyze, well, what happened here? What happened here? What happened here? Why did that happen? All, and so we can sort, it's an easier way, I think, to analyze behavior with history. So looking at Hitler, looking at Mao, looking at Stalin, like, and I think for me, like I've just always been interested in, in dictators and war and the most evil things like it's it's crazy like for me one of the first history classes i took was medieval history in high school bro if you want to like see some scary shit look at like medieval history that will blow you away the stuff that happened in me like thank god we don't live then like thank god we are not living in those times mm. um wow it's like unbelievable like the the times that we live in now are the best like we we're sitting in air conditioning. We're so comfortable. We can get our Uber eats. Like, yes, there's terrible things going on in the world, but never has the world seen a better time than today. Like today is the best day in the entire history of the world. Today is the best day by far. Like it's, it is. And we're so lucky and blessed to be living now. I think it's another reason why I like history. Cause it's like, man, holy shit. People had it really tough and we've got it so easy. Yeah. So, uh, uh, last question to, to wrap up. Um, and you touched on a quote, a couple of good quotes actually, um, just before, but what is a quote that has helped you become better? I love, like, I love a good quote and I always, I'm always seeking them out. Yeah, man, there's a bunch, but I have, I have one tattooed on my arm and it just says he who hesitates is lost. And my mom said it to me when I was like eight or nine years old after a wrestling tournament, I had beat everybody in the tournament, made it to the finals. And I just made a stupid mistake in the finals and I hesitated and I lost when I should have won. It was a kid that I had beat before I beat him after I should have fucking won. Um, and I'll never forget. I was sitting in the backseat of my mom's car. She looked in the, uh, the rear view mirror and she just looks at me and she goes, he who hesitates is lost. That's all she needed to say. And, and I was like, fuck. And, yeah. and so I got that tattooed on my arm and, and it, it applies to everything in my life, whether it's business, whether it's my relationship with my wife, uh, like whatever it is, like he who hesitates is lost. And for all the politically correct people, he or she who hesitates, whatever the fuck. But the original quote is just he who hesitates is lost, right? So yeah. it's, it's really thinking about not sitting and dwelling and th just do it. Just mm. do it. Because if the longer you wait, the longer you hesitate, the you know, the more issues there's going to be. Yeah. That aligns with me massively. Like that's, I think one reason why I've been able to like, even just make this job that I call a career now, 
um, that didn't really exist. Like obviously you did it way before me, but it's not a common job. Oh, online personal trainer, like Correct. personal trainer is yeah. weird enough. People look at you like, oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I just, yeah, like from Christchurch, I just left and then I just went here and, and then I went from Christchurch to Auckland to Gold Coast. Like I just flew all over just different places. Like, and you just have to go. And I feel like a lot of people like just coming through now and even just like that I've spoken to that want to run their own business, that want to, you know, even just like be a personal trainer. What do I study? They're asking so many questions. There's, there's like, I, I feel like the amount of information or, or, or maybe even just the way that people are kind of thinking now, I feel like there's a lot of hesitation. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you've yeah. experienced this too, but like, like I have many conversations with people that want to start something that just don't. And like, I've, yeah. I've come to like being broke many times in my life, <laughs> like being like real, like, so I understand that some people don't want to do that. And, but I've always had the courage to just kind of back myself. My dad's always been super supportive. Like, yeah, son, just do it. Um, so I think that's definitely helped me as well. Parenting shapes you massively. Um, but have you found that as well with people around you? Yeah. With everything, there's another great book. It's called. It's actually by the same authors of Made to Stick. It's called uh, Decisive, by Chip and Dan Heath. And mm. um, I think when a lot of people here don't hesitate, they assume that means well, just do it. Like just just do like do whatever it is you're saying you want to do. And in many cases, I agree. But sometimes it's not about doing it. It's about deciding you're not going to do it. Just make the fucking decision, whatever it is. Don't be in this middle ground of, well, should I or should I not? Should I choose? Make a decision. You're either going to do it or you're not going to do it. The issue is when you're just floating in between and Mm. you spend weeks and months and years floating and floating and floating and then you're unhappy when it's like if you just made it, yes, you know what? I'm going to go for it. Or you know what? Fuck it. Not worth it. I'm not going to go for it. Whatever it is, just decide. Mm. Make the choice. And from there, you can finally move on with whatever it is you're going to do. Either you're going to keep going, you're going to try and move forward with that, or you're going to move to something else. But when you're just floating in this like, oh, I don't know what to do, that's when there's problems. And that's when you end up being unhappy and unsure and imposter syndrome and all of this stuff. It's like, just go, do something. Hmm. Yeah, often the weight of indecision is much heavier than the weight of like deciding yes or no. Correct, 100%. Hmm. Yep. And well, if, if you're the person who's like, I don't know if I'm, if I can say, I don't want to do this yet, then do it. Like if you're, if you're floating, you're like, well, I don't know if I can mm-hmm. with, with finality say that I don't want to do it, then do it and see how it goes. Mm-hmm. And if yeah. it doesn't work. I think one thing that, that people, I guess, underestimate is the power of just doing something and how that actually builds confidence regardless if you fail or not like i've failed many times you know and i'm sure you've had your sheer amount of failures too but that's often where you learn the most like i tried to i tried to build a personal training website a while back and lost a lot of money but from (laughs) that i got yeah like long story but yeah worked with the wrong people and now you know rebuilding something it's like you know now you you know even though it was a costly mistake you understand I know what sort of people I want to work with. I know that, you know, that, that, that this is where we're going. And I feel like that's undervalued now. And people yeah. are too afraid to kind of have those experiences. I've failed way more than I've succeeded. Mm. Like if we, if we could make a, a handwritten list of my total failures versus my total successes, the failures would be like, it would fill so many libraries 
Like, <laughs> and, and the successes might fill like a few pages of one book, but the failures would be tons of university-sized libraries. And people really don't understand that. It's like they, it's easier to look at what someone else has done and only look at what they've done well and not see what they've failed at. But with yourself, it's the opposite. With yourself, you always look at the, what you've failed and not at what you've succeeded. So it, it's, you have to flip it and you really have to focus on just, just go you, and know that you will fail. But mm. those failures will lead to successes as long as you don't quit. Yeah, I think that, yeah, that's so true, man. Failure is like the key just to getting better. All right, yeah. man. Well, I'll, um, man, I'll wrap it there. I appreciate your time. Um, I had a few other things I want to talk about, but mate, I appreciate your time. Uh, I hope that the, um, the baby site comes soon. I know that it's expected very soon. Uh, I've yes. been following your yeah, stories. Yeah. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much. Listen, man, this has been great. Uh, I'll come on anytime and I promise I will do better than, uh, with the scheduling, but thank you. This, this has been great, man. You're an awesome host and, and keep up the amazing work. And thank you very much, man. I appreciate your time. Of course. All right, bud.